Welcome to On the Flip Side, the show where two 30-something entrepreneurs break down what we consider the most important books out there today. This season on On the Flip Side, we are discussing Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski. My name is Lindsay, and I'm here with my co-host, Amanda. Hi, everybody. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. I'm in my school bus, so I'm I'm good. How are you? Good. I love it. I love seeing you in your bus. And I'm good because we are talking about connection today. We are on chapter six of this book, and this one starts section three. So really sort of starting to tie everything we've learned in this book together. And I love this chapter specifically because we all crave connection. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it is connection is more or less in the dead center of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and so we need it and we need it differently because everyone's a different human and we're all sort of entitled to our differences. So getting right into it. When it comes to connection, they say right off the bat in this chapter, people vary in their appetites for connection because of the quirk of personality. I know that, you know, you can think about extroverts and introverts and amniverts and all of that. And I think that's just an offshoot of how we engage with our personal needs for connection. So let's define it while we're at it here at the top of the episode for the sake of this discussion i think it's important to note that we aren't talking about romantic relationships or marriages specifically we are talking about having positive social relationships of all kinds be that friendship or sisterhood they also say in the book that back to maslow's hierarchy of needs. Social connection is a form of nourishment and loneliness is a form of starvation. That feels extreme. It really does. Starvation and loneliness. I mean, how does, how does that equate? And I would definitely say that if you have never experienced true loneliness, you might think that this is a little bit bogus. When I yeah. first read this, I was like, wait, what? And then the further I dived into my own psyche and a little bit of my history, and then knowing other people and what they've gone through, it started to all make sense. And statistically, it actually has been proven that social isolation and loneliness increase a person's odds of an early death by 25 to 30%, which is on the lines of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's bonkers. It is, especially from the medical industry who say, you know, get more sleep and have a healthy environment, uh, eat a healthy diet and definitely mm -hmm. don't smoke. But I've never been asked and I've seen a lot of doctors. What is your connection like? What does your social support structure look like? 
You've never been asked that? I have by a therapist, but never by somebody in the medical field that was trying to figure out any of my uniqueness uh, medically. Huh. I feel like, and I, I personally believe that I have the best GP in the world. Uh, hi, Kara. But every single time I go in for a checkup, every single time for like my annual physical, one of the things we talk about is also my mental health. And part of that is, so what do your relationships look like these days? Like, are you, how, how is your marriage? Are you still living in the building with all your friends? Because I don't know, maybe it's further evidence that I do have the best GP in the world. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree that a a good general practitioner is someone who sees you holistically. Mm. I also have a lot of experience with general practitioners that don't, that want to hand you medicines or want to tell you you need to lose weight or you need to change this habit, change this habit, add this, you know, have this, what seems to be a holistic mindset and physical setup but if you don't look at the connection part of this you are going to lead to be starving mm. yeah and i think i think it's important to note that people tend to take better care of themselves when they're in high quality relationships and you hear that and you think maybe but then i think about I'm going to explicitly not use my marriage as the example here, but I think of one of my friendships who, you know, she is all about forming healthy habits, like healthy, sustainable, like very holistic habits around eating and moving and getting your steps in and just her relationship to the world is pretty holistic. And I find that when I am around her, I'm generally more balanced because she's more balanced. Like her, her influence, I, I must fall within her circle of influence. Her influence prompts me to take better care of myself. Mm. And that's powerful. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the ultimate leading by example. Yeah. And it's, we'll get into this in a little bit, um, but it is that when you're around people that have, well, I guess when you're around people in general, you tend to sink, whether it's your heart rate or it's your habits or it's um, your cycles as women. The more time you spend in the presence of other people, you tend to sink, and it also includes your habits, and it also includes taking care of yourself. And so if mm -hmm. you are in a less healthy relationship, you tend to take on more unhealthy behaviors, or you start to put yourself and your needs at the back of the line of priorities. Human giver syndrome. <laughs> You gonna throw that at us again? <laughs> you know, I think it all goes back to that, but I also think moving forward, anytime I hear you backburnering yourself, I'm just gonna start throwing human giver syndrome at you. <laughs> <laughs> 
And you're not wrong. You're absolutely I know. not wrong. <laughs> yeah, but doesn't it just give you a jolt to even be accused of it? From you, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys, watch out. When it comes to social interaction, when it comes to building connections, I know I earlier referenced being an introvert or an extrovert, but in the industrialized West, things are sort of assigned to us at birth when we are assigned a gender. And I don't think any parent or doctor or nurse or anybody sets out to do this. But the reality is that within the patriarchy, within this system that we've discussed before, boys are generally raised to have an identity grounded in autonomy, which is to say they're stronger and superior and masculine. Whereas little girls are raised to have an identity grounded in connection, which is to say potentially weaker, inferior, and more feminine. And I, I, I know we put together the outline for this and we've already discussed this a little bit, but this point actually right now is striking me as a little bit offensive. I think it's funny when I'm offended, like the fifth time I'm visiting something, because it, it really does remind me of, you know, in your career or when you're applying to a job, the job description will say, these are the hard skills you need and here's the soft skills you need. And all of those soft skills tend to be in the weaker, inferior, more feminine side of things, the communication, the willingness to compromise and work together and collaborate. And I just think it's hilarious. That's not the right word, but I, I, I just think it's telling that those things are considered soft skills when they are so fundamental to the way that everyone and especially women relate to each other. Yeah, I, I agree with your entertainment with yourself about reading something for the fifth time and being offended. Because when I initially worked with you on which points we wanted to cover, it was about the importance of connection. It wasn't about how connection is seen as weak. Mm. And the more we dive into this, the more I feel that similar feeling, maybe offended is the wrong word, but yeah. it's, it's almost eye-opening, right? To, mm. to hear and to read and to process, you know, I know that you and I are verbal processors. And so to do this and to feel that feeling, that connection, which we so deeply need is thought of as weak and thought of as a secondary skill, if that. It's hard to swallow that. Yeah, it, it strikes me as this is how, like, there's so many shitty managers out there 
like you can have every uh, credential in the book. You can tick off every single box, but if you've never taken time to consider the feeling of others, uh, thought about EQ or communication, or even recognize that the way you feel affects other people, then you're probably not going to be the most effective person to run a team, professionally or otherwise. That's true. Which gets us into connected synchrony. And that's another concept that the more I think about it, the bigger it gets for me. And it's the whole concept of how your internal state is contagious. And in the book, they even say it's profoundly contagious. And the example they give is predominantly a developmental um, example, but, but it's really, really effective. And I think it sets the tone for really the rest of our lives. So until age two or three, a child's emotional state is based almost solely on the adults around them. It's why when a little kid falls or bonks their head, the first time, the first thing they do is look to their parent. And if their parent's going, oh no, the kid's mm -hmm. going to start screaming. But if the parent doesn't really, you know, says, oh, brush it off, you're good. The kid will be fine because the kid is fine either way. By age three, children begin to understand that people have internal experiences which are separate from their own. Um, and I guess I just forget that there was a time where even I believed that because, you know, developmental stages. Um, and then by teenage years, we can take care of ourselves, but <laughs> we're inherently social beings. So we tend to stick close to other people. It's, it's the experience of throwing a room. It's the experience of being in a bad mood and watching everyone around you sink down to your depths. Or alternatively, it's walking into a room with energy up and bringing that room up with you. And the truth of it is, is that we are made of energy. And mm. you bring that with you into whatever space you walk into and everybody's energy either ebbs and flows or it conflicts and you end up in <laughs> uh you know an energy battle and mm. predominantly it tends to go toward the more strong or I don't even like using the more strong term, but the, the more dominating kind of energy. And a lot of times that is positive. A lot of times that's, you know, somebody who just has a flair for life and who isn't going to let something or somebody else in a bad mood affect their mood. But on the flip side, you know, there's a lot of situations where it's the negative or destructive energy in the room or the just focused on get it done and ignore the other energies in general and not take a moment to assess how the room feels that can lead to situations where you know most people feel stressed and then it becomes a stressor and then that has to be dealt with and you have to go through this stress cycle <laughs> and then yeah and then you're then you have to go through the stress cycle so what do you, what 
do you do when you are feeling drained? Well, in the book, they say, if human giver syndrome is a virus, the bubble of love is the environment that fuels your immune response. Talk to me about the bubble of love. Only if our next book is about love, because I feel like, I feel like we need a book on love. <laughs> um, I think you've already picked the next book and it's on boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a version of love. For self love. Yes. Which I would definitely say is a part of the bubble of love. Yeah. The bubble of love being this safe environment where you can be authentic, where you can rest and where ideally you're in a situation where you get recharged. And for the longest time, I had no idea what recharging really was. And then it was explained to me and I had to, I was forced to practice it and really buckle down and write out what those were. And I realized that a lot of those supposed things that were supposed to recharge me, at least socially, weren't those things. They were additional things that I had to do in order to be a good human giver. What then I realized is that in order to be recharged, what that really means is to be a part of an environment where you are doing something that makes your stress and your tiredness almost fall by the wayside. And this can be anything from sitting in nature to shopping to photography to, you know, being creative, um, even to like taking a nap with a loved one. Recharging is different for everybody, but it's in this context, it's doing something that when you're doing it, the rest of the stress that you're dealing with tends to fall away and you're able to feel like you can handle it again. I kind of have two main methods of recharging my battery. One is the, I go to my hole. I, you know, snuggle down with my cats and a blanket and a book. And that's all you're going to get from me. Don't, don't try to call. Don't try to text. Do not show up because it's 100% about me. Um, but the other kind, and I think, I think this is really where other people and other connections come in um, to the bubble of love. And that is sort of the external recharging. So any situation when you are surrounded or with loved ones, with people that you fundamentally trust, which is to say you believe that they're going to reciprocate in proportion to whatever you give them. That's an incredible way to recharge and frankly, recharging together. It's sort of two birds with one stone. Mm. It reminds me of the emotional deposits from the seven habits of highly effective mm -hmm. people. Mm-hmm basically yeah. taking moments to invest in somebody else 
and um, to reciprocate in a way that is beneficial for both parties. When you don't have emotional deposits and you don't have that trust, even if you want to, you know, even if you're, you're trying really hard to, people who don't trust or are untrustworthy are energy drains. And that's kind of hard to say and more difficult to hear because you don't want to believe that anybody is an energy drain, but we're all different. We all have needs. And the more we put into a relationship without reciprocity, the more it is draining. Well, that gets back to, again, the human giver syndrome of all of it. The people who give are human givers and the people who take are just plain humans. So when you're in your bubble of love, which is to say your bubble of trust with other people, really all that's saying is that everyone is behaving as a human giver, giving what they can to the other because they trust and they know and they believe in their heart of hearts that it's it's going to come back to them one way or another. I think a good additional point to that is authenticity. Mm. With trust and a trusting relationship, a relationship where you can expect that the other person is going to reciprocate in a reasonably equal kind of way, you can show up as your authentic self. I mean, there's... There's always those situations where I'm trying to remember the exact term that's in burnout, but it's, it's like inauthentic authenticity, something like that, where it's like you're in a situation where you are expected to play nice. Strategic inauthenticity. Strategic inauthenticity. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Well, it's part of trust too. It, it definitely is. There are situations in life where bringing our full authentic feelings and presence to a situation, our energy, may not be the most constructive thing. The example that's given in burnout, uh, they tell of a situation where it's a kid's birthday party and you put in all of this effort. And in order to maintain trust with your child, you don't lose your mind at your ex and you keep it together and you are able to be present in a way that if you were to be 100% authentic, you know, may lead to an unpleasant situation for everybody because of past history. But strategic inauthenticity maintains that trust and that relationship with your child. If authenticity means being totally yourself, I feel like strategic inauthenticity points to being as in sync with your values as you possibly can. So in your example, as much as I'm sure you'd like to rip your ex's face off, your kid's there and your values dictate that your, your kid's birthday party is far more important and your kid's happiness is far more important than getting a jab in at your ex. So you might be playing nice in the moment, but you're doing it for the greater good, which is your child. 
I'm trying really hard not to throw human giver syndrome in your face right now. You can throw it. <laughs> and, and I'll, well, you can, because I agree. I, there are some things that are bigger than us. And if you are truly in tune with your values, you're going to do what you need to do to come out on the other end of that. If what you value most is your relationship with your child and how your child remembers this birthday party, the last thing you want to do is mar it with a fight between mommy and daddy. Mm. So yeah, in the moment, it's not authentic. In the moment, you are playing nice and being placid, but really you're doing it because you love your child, which feels like one of the most authentic things you could possibly do. And to an extent, I would argue that it's in line with your finding something larger. Mm -hmm. So the bottom line here, whether it's children, peers, spouses, colleagues, when people in our bubble can turn with kindness and compassion towards our difficult emotions, and we can do the same for them, it strengthens the bubble like nothing else. So who's in your bubble? Think about it. Who can help you recharge? Who do you trust the most? And how can you continually make deposits into that emotional bank account? Because if you've already said that they are one of your loved ones, they're gonna make deposits as well. So I wanna switch gears a little bit here. Um, so far we've talked about the importance of connection. We've talked about how, how the way we feel affects other people. We've talked about the bubble of love, which is, you know, sort of our happy place, but how do we determine what we need and when? According to Blythe McVicker Clinchy, who codified two divergent ways of knowing, we look at things from the separate knowing perspective and connected knowing. In separate knowing, you essentially separate an idea from its context and assess it in terms of some externally imposed rules. And, uh, if you think of it in 21st century social media brains, you can think of this almost as mansplaining. You take the idea from its context and then apply thought processes to it. It's also <laughs> known best as the rational way of looking at things. The logical, the rational, take something and how to do it and connected knowing is only trying to understand something within its context. So separate knowing is what they teach you in school. It's, it's how they teach you to find answers. Whereas connected knowing is how you just sort of know things fundamentally and internally. Is that right? Yeah, I think that that would be a an interesting way to put it when you say that I think of your intuition right that sixth sense mm. that has more context than even your brain often realizes and 
in the bubble of love, what that often looks like is putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, pulling yourself away from the assumptions, the judgments, your typical thought processes, and really just being present with the other person. Okay, so it's not scientific necessarily, it's intuitive, which gets us back to sort of those soft skills. I mean, I am the first one to admit that, like, I have a college degree, like, I have that, but I I make 85% of my decisions based on my intuition and my gut, and does this feel right? I think, I think it's important to note that in separate knowing, you are evaluating something in the context by externally imposed rules. Whereas when you're, you know, sort of playing in the connected knowing space, it's, it's approaching a concept within its context, um, because we can really only understand something if we also understand how it relates to the context it comes from. Think about the uh, the trees that we talked about a few episodes ago, right? The tall redwood beside sort of the gnarled tree that was raised on the side of a cliff with wind and rain and ocean battering it they don't look the same and they don't look the same because they come from a different context. Mm-hmm. And when we practice connected knowing, it doesn't just help us connect to others. It, it sort of allows us to connect differently within ourselves. I mean, that's where you say, well, if I were raised on the side of a cliff, what would I look like? How would I operate? And I, I, think, it, I think it's a really great way to prompt um, an empathetic response. Yeah, definitely. I love that you brought up the trees. Not only do I love trees, but connected knowing is so important to everyone's stories. Without it, you really just get surface level. You can make judgments and assumptions based on appearance, based on how it looks in the moment or reacts or, you know, cause trees react, but, um, <laughs> well, they do branches fall off when the wind blows. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'll use a, a graphic design example for a second, but if you take a picture of both of those trees and you remove the background, Sure, the the tree that was raised on the cliffside may be more creatively and intrinsically unique to look at, but typically when you are designing something and your definition that you need to hit with your goal is tree, you're going to choose the tree mm-hmm. that without context looks most like a tree. Whereas Mm. with context, if you were to look at both of those pictures, the tree that's on the cliffside arguably has so much more of a story to tell. And not to say that the other tree Mm. doesn't, because there's so much that we don't see in that one glimpse. But the point being that without context, without the background in that picture, 
we really have no ability to see where that tree comes from, what it has had to deal with, and it's really hard to have any form of compassion, empathy, and connection. So is it bad to judge things out of their context? I'd, well, answer my own question. I'd argue that, no, it's not inherently bad. It's not bad to judge things based on sort of a, an organized and methodical set of criteria. But without the context of that cliff, you lose so much of the story, which is why in the book they actually say that the blend of connected and separate knowing is called constructed knowing, and it's holistic. You can compare whatever this thing is in front of you to a set of metrics, and then you can say, and where did it come from? So why is it like mm. this? Which is really when deep connection happens. I don't have relationships that only see me on good days, mm. right? I don't have relationships that only see me on bad days. I have relationships that see me as me and contextualize my good moods, my bad moods, my good days, my bad days. And on those bad days, the people I'm closest with are pretty good at flagging that I need to stop what I'm doing and recharge. I applaud you for having people in your life that see you on both bad and good, see you within that full context. I know for myself and for a lot of people, it's, it's really hard to only have that. We have so many different environments, and in a lot of ways, we have different versions of ourselves that we show up with. In order for true connection, though, you're right. A lot of times we have to recharge. And I talked about that a little bit earlier, but um, it's, it's extremely important with everything that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis. And some examples of when it's really important is when you've been gaslit. You know, we need a reality check that someone else can give us, that they can validate that, yeah, what you're going through is legitimate. It is hard. And really to be that sounding board and that support structure. And we only get that in, in a way in the bubble of love, right? With people that we trust, with people that we can be our authentic selves with. And that when they respond and say, nope, that's that's right, you're not crazy, that we trust that that comes from a place of connection and contextual knowing of us. Mm -hmm. Another example is when you feel like you're not enough, like let's go back to the first lines of this book, which is this book is for any woman who's ever felt overwhelmed and exhausted by everything she has to do and yet still worried she's not doing enough. Humans aren't built to do big things alone. If we were, when we were teenagers and we were technically self-sufficient, we would leave the pack 
we don't do that for the most part because of these connections, because of the bubble of love, because of the knowing we need other people. We really do. And the next example is when we're sad, you know, sadness we're taught is to be pushed down, to be ignored, to only open that box when you're in the perfect environment for handling the sadness. But that leads to chronic stress, right? It's, it's this box that we haven't dealt with and sadness is a bat signal. You know, we, we need friends Mm -hmm. or partners or family who in the darkness is willing to step up and say, I'm right here. Yeah. And also what is a convenient time or place to be sad? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if I could pre-schedule that, believe me, I would like PTO, but that's not how this works. And if you're like me and you're sad, it's not uncommon that sadness can turn into boiling with rage. Preach it. Um, which they brilliantly say, rage is like a chef's knife. It can be a weapon or you can use it to make a beautiful meal. You need people. You need connection in those moments. Rage gives you the strength and energy and the urge to fight. But sharing that energy in the bubble changes it from something potentially dangerous to something safe and potentially transformative. And, you know, I do think that on our own, we could and do sometimes process these emotions, the sadness, the boiling rage. But like anything else, it really, really helps to have another person there with you to bounce ideas off, to act as a sounding board, to sometimes take the matches out of your hands and sit with you. Sometimes I think the greatest emotional deposit anybody could make, the greatest gift of trust is to just sit there with you in the ugly moments and like not turn from them. Those are powerful moments. And those are, those are definitely moments when mm. we are at arguably our most vulnerable and having the relationships that we value the most that do have that trust, that do have that connected knowing basis, having context. Those are the things that I don't think that society values as much as it should. Soft skills. Oh, it makes me angry just even wanting to like repeat that term in this context because we so deeply need connection. We so deeply need it. And everyone in our lives need it too. And it's when we take a leap and we are there for other people and that we start providing this, the reciprocity that we can have a truly life-changing experience with somebody else whether it's a friend or you know somebody who you barely know now but you very quickly might you know one of the things that Lindsay and I were talking about is how for some of our relationships Mm. you know it's like this instant knowing this instant friendship 
Whereas with others, it takes time. And regardless of where you're at, Mm -hmm. knowing that connection is good for you and for your health. It's a, it's a pretty powerful realization. At least it has been for me. Yeah. I'm still stuck on something we said at the top of this, which is social connection is a form of nourishment and loneliness is a form of starvation. So we need one another. We're all in this together, whether we're established or not, whether we're friends or connected or whatnot, we are all in this together one way or another. So, well, our energy is contagious. <laughs> That's true. So whether or not we want to be, we are. Yeah. One important point that we didn't go over that we definitely need to bring up is that you can have connection with things that aren't humans. And I say this as someone who has a snoring Frenchie on my lap and I would not rather be anywhere else. Well, because they're made of energy too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, I was talking with one of my girlfriends about this last night and your dogs are pretty smart, right? (laughs) Yes. I mean, theoretically Frenchie's, and yours are so well-trained. Um, don't let Amanda ever say anything otherwise. They have the brains of like a two-year-old, right? Yeah, on a good day, probably three. That means even they recognize that they have an experience that's separate from ours. Mm. Think about that. Yeah. And they're incredibly tied into our energy as well. Yeah. They're like babies. They're dependent on it, but they also they also know that they have some experience outside of ours. How do we wrap this up? Well, next week we will be talking about one of my favorite and most challenging topics, which is rest. Mm-hmm. Rest is productive, right? It is. It very much is, or so they tell me. How hard is it to remember that? (laughs) (laughs) Tell my to-do list. See what it thinks. Yeah, lovely. You're you're disproving our very points. Yeah. Thanks for sticking this one out with us, guys. Connection is big. So, thank you. And we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye! (laughs) 